As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. Welcome, welcome you all where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like grapes, fences, and befuddlement. Or peas, fleas, and teas. Teasing. Or disease, sleaze, and the wheeze. You can tell where, where we are today. It's coronavirus time. It is. It is. I'd like to do the history of teasing. I'd like to do the history of contagion. Contagion would be excellent. Uh, we will be following the links as we always do in our minds as we come across them, explaining how these histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that contagion is all about hands? Happy birthday. Are you washing your hands and singing happy birthday all the time? I was hoping, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about oppressive regimes, fear, panic, bulk buying. Uh, Thomas Malthus and the, the curing the, the pension crisis. And my friend Antonia. Do you know what? Um, as we are in the grip of coronavirus... Yes. Uh, what you just said oh, we're there... Not, we're not yet. No, no, but what you just said there is really interesting because it made me think that uh, doing unexpected histories of stuff is... Um, if you look at something contemporary that's happening in the world today, that allows you to ping off in all sorts of different directions in a much easier way than it does in the past. But by doing things, uh, looking at stuff today, that inspires you to go back to the past and go, oh, it must be yes. all about this, that and the other. Yeah, yeah. Spanish uh, flu. Hmm. Spanish flu epidemic. Um, Fear. Yes, th- those are all excellent, James. Are um, they excellent? They, um, I'm, I'm did always Did you know excellent. that the history of Venice is all about salt and pepper? Yeah, other condiments as well, but primarily salt and pepper. It's about vinegar. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm going to, to uh, do a bit of a... We'll do a thing on Venice. OK. Uh, I'm going back out there again in the summer. I want to do Paris as well. I'm about to head off to Paris. Ooh. I love Paris. It's my favourite, 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 most favourite city in the entire world. Hmm. OK. I love it. Uh, the man sitting opposite me is the evolutionary missing link between past and present. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Well, thank you very much, Sam. Thank you very much. I love that. You looked at me as if I was I, like, that I is no correct. What, I had no idea what you were talking about. But the man sitting opposite me is the one horseman of the apocalypse. Oh, nice. It's the, it's, you can see I'm in dark mood. It's the truly wonderful, famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, today we're doing a little bit of a special on Darwin. Charles Darwin, he of evolutionary fame. That's right. Um, Origin of species, etc., etc. And we're doing this because uh, we did one of our schools show at the excellent Shrewsbury School. Yes. Talked to a big theatre full of uh, 
kids between what are the ages of 13 and 17 i suppose yes maybe some 18 year olds maybe some 18 year olds um helping them along with their gcses and their a-levels in history teaching them to think creatively about the past it was immensely good fun um and while we were there we discovered because i didn't know this that darwin has a link with shrewsbury um, and not only that, but he he was, uh, I've got what it is now, is he born there or he was baptised there he, or he something? Was, he was born in Shrewsbury and he was a boy at Shrewsbury School. Oh, OK. Um, and not only was there a, a strong Darwin link, but they've got all sorts of lovely Darwin things in their library, which we were lucky enough to, to look at, weren't we? We were, and we met the Taylor librarian and archivist, Dr Robin Brooks-Smith, who was a terrific man, so fascinating and so so welcoming and enthusiastic about the items in his care and an erudite gentleman James. oh really a totally erudite gentleman <laughs> uh he was he was he was wonderful um i could have spent hours just just chatting to him so we we went into what is the the beginnings of a darwin exhibition and we've got an interview coming up with him in a little bit uh, it's quite long it's about 40 minutes so he showed us around that, and there were all sorts of items there. They've got all sorts of Darwiniana. I think that was the phrase that you were looking yeah. looking for. They've got all sorts of correspondence. And as a letter geek, uh, I got very excited about this. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit in a little bit about the Darwin Correspondence Project that's going on at the University of Cambridge and has been producing uh, dozens of volumes of Darwin's correspondence. Mm. But also they had little bits from his his life, his childhood. We saw a first edition uh, signed copy of The Origin of Species. Yes. Um, they've got tons of his correspondence there, all sort of carefully, carefully catalogued. And the Taylor Library is a very early 17th century library full of medieval manuscripts, collections of Bibles. It's got a wonderful collection of antique book and modern book bindings it was intended as what's called a, a walk-through library it was intended what does that mean immediately i'm about to explain oh. um it was a pause for thought comma um and expand on that first sentence so a walk-through library is a library where you would walk through to observe things so it was primarily something where to do with scientific instruments and experiments so you would have all those things out and one of the first things that they got was a big, big sort of globe Mm -hmm. um, that people could go in and look at. And it was it was based on libraries of the time at Oxford and Cambridge, which were chained libraries. Yep. And I think we saw some of the chained libraries. Those of you who like your Harry Potter, and you see in Hogwarts the chained books, uh, it had a, one of the sort of earliest chained libraries. So it was a wonderful place to go along and, and have a look at. It was interesting, that the mix, looking back on it now, actually, there was a strong mix of display as well as storage it wasn't just yes. a kind of a functional library for storage there were there was quite a lot laid out for us to see in like cabinets weren't yes. there and built yes. into the bookcases which i really really loved and then yes. there were the um like you get in a museum where was i was i was in berlin the other week um in the uh, new museum looking at some egyptian stuff they had a very similar setup so they have these kind of cabinets with glass tops um with a heavy material over the top, which you can then peel back so it protects the um, the ancient letters, whatever yes, it might so be, the from, light from daylight. Yeah, but it was you know on a much tinier scale to the one in Berlin. But it was um, it was it was extraordinary. So you 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 go into this room and someone somewhere, a curator, has decided to present a certain number of things in the collection to you, which you can't miss. 
So that, to a certain extent, it's the kind of place you can explore and browse, but you're also being um, being presented with things. Is it a little curated uh, exhibition? Yeah, of things? It, yes. And, but what also became incredibly clear was like these little gems that were curated and presented to you were by no means the only important things yeah. in that room. Um, it's the tip of the iceberg. It's the treasures. We saw Crom Oliver Cromwell's death mask. Yes. There. Uh, and, and that beautiful little cabinet of of rare book bindings, yeah. uh, which I thought was fascinating, with beautiful um, uh, sort of work on, on the spines. And this comes from a period when books would have been sold unbound. So you'd basically get the paper, and the, the, the paper would be bound together, but then they wouldn't have a cover on them. Yeah. And so you'd buy a book unbound like that, and then you would send it off to a bookbinder to bind it for you, and then the bookbinder would put it in, in leather according to you know your your tastes and your financial requirements and it was part of the identity of a library or and within a library you would have they they would do various sort of detailing on it um that would be that would have initials or crests or would look for a sort of series of books in a series uh and it's really a, a sort of um that sort of detailed tooling allows bookbinders to express themselves creatively or artistically yeah. like a little bit of work of art i love the miniature work ones. of art Yes. Did we talk about those in our podcast on shrinking? We probably did. Little tiny little what are those about? Tiny why, why little do you get, why do you tiny get little pocket books. Yeah. Well rather like we have very portable books nowadays. There were a lot of them were early prayer books and little finger finger bibles or finger books uh, that you could carry around. They're literally the size of your finger, exactly. Literally what it is. The size are they of called your finger. finger books? Yes. There's a finger prayer books. There there are a couple of finger prayer books at Powderham castle mm -hmm. in the archives there there's a there's a secret room uh with several cartridge boxes would you believe cartridge boxes and and in the cartridge boxes as in are, shotgun cartridges as in shotgun cartridges and in the in the shotgun cartridge boxes are a number of family prayer books including several examples of tiny little finger prayer books the size of my finger mm. like this that could be then opened up and, and looked at and the idea is that you have a book that is eminently portable and it can be just slipped into a, a little pocket and it gives you the sense that people are reading not in, in libraries or at desks, but they are taking them out and about. And it suggests, uh, particularly with, with, with religious works like that, it suggests that prayers are part of the everyday life of, of individuals. And lot, lots and lots of these survive from the 16th century as people are fearful for their souls. Um, hmm. If you're interested in that, actually, um, it sounded fascinating, but I know I've already talked about it, but we have done an episode on the unexpected history of Powderham Castle, and we we've also done one on boxes. Yes, yes. Um, so that's led us there. Anyway, let's get our, let's heave ourselves back... And shrinking. Uh, let's heave ourselves back towards Darwin. Yes, because ho. we were kind of inspired just to maybe have a chat a little about the unexpected ways you can think about Charles Darwin. Yeah. Um, and do we need a little sort of intro to Charles Darwin? Yes. Uh, Charles Darwin, uh, 19th century. Uh, he's an English naturalist, geologist, biologist. Uh, he is probably best known for his work on evolution. So this idea that uh, all species of life have descended over time from common ancestors, that there's a sort of uh, survival of the fittest, natural selection, all of that kind of thing. These ideas have sort of come down to us in various forms, but were contested at the time. Okay. Um, he lived 
uh, between 1809 and 1882. He's buried in Westminster Abbey nowadays. He had was born in Shrewsbury uh, and his mother died when he was quite young. He went to Shrewsbury School, as we said, but it wasn't particularly keen on the classical curriculum of the time, so Latin, uh, Greek, etc., etc., and the rote learning, and was much more of a sort of an adventurous, wild spirit. I get the sense of him sort of at home. You can't can't wait to get home to sort of head out into the into the wilderness and back garden to to, to collect things. Yeah. I, I get the sense of a really curious child who is really obsessed with natural history. He then goes off to Edinburgh. His father sent takes him away from school quite early, sends him off to Edinburgh to train uh, in medicine and then goes to uh, the University of Cambridge, I think it is, um, Christ's College. And then the big thing is when he goes off on HMS Beagle, uh, which you'll probably know all about, uh, yeah. sort of ship that sort of sailed around the world and, and he was on it for about five years and he this really sort of started his, his sort of deep training in... Inquiry of the natural world. I like what you said about him being a kid there and a sort of a restless, restless mind. And it makes me think about the the making of obsession, mm. that hmm. kind of curious moment. Because you think of Darwin, you think, well, he was always, always a naturalist and a scientist. Of course, he wasn't. No. But at some point in his life, he suddenly went, "Hang on a minute, I'm properly interested in this." And it was Beatles, wasn't it? Um, that rings a bell. There was a, there was a kind of a craze. Uh, I, I might be wrong here. I don't think so. But there might there was a craze when he was a, a young kid for collecting beetles. And there were kids everywhere. It wasn't just Darwin doing it. And they were all running around trying to find new species of beetles and trying to, to um, um, you know, jot down what they were, describe what they were. So it's like you get this sort of sense of childhood play in the you know 19th century being embedded in the environment and the excitement of it. Because what we know now was not necessarily what they knew then. And so there was a, they were, you know, you've got kids at the forefront of discovering stuff and they realised that there were so many different types of beetles. They're so completely fascinating and, and they've got a chance of making their own little discovery now. But it's much harder, yeah. isn't it? With, yeah. with so much known about the world that if you want to find an unknown species, you've got to go to the bottom of the Marianas Trench or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's it. That Victorian sense of inquiry and discovery that the world is out there to be, particularly the sort of medical and natural world, is out there to be investigated and sorted and various sort of, you know, stratifications, a taxonomy of the of the natural world is there to be to be written. And I get and just sort of reading about him. And I said this to the archivist that he feel he feels very much like a Gerald Durrell type character. Yeah. You know, everyone's familiar with the Durrells on TV nowadays or My Family and Other Animals and the other books in that series. And you get the sense of this young boy who is almost, you know, free to do to roam and do what he wanted. Although his father was was um his father was a bit cross with him. Um, and said that you know that he basically wasn't interested in in anything, nothing. He wasn't interested in school. He was only interested in shooting dogs, rat catching, and uh, you will be a disgrace to yourself and your family. Apparently, <laughs> his father said to him. Yeah. Um, my parents felt very similar to me. <laughs> so, well, let's take it up to the other end of his life now, because we are just thinking about him as a as a, as a young boy yes. exploring the world and how exciting it is. Out of all of the letters we we saw in the exhibition, my favourite was a one written um, 
a matter of weeks, possibly days before he died. Yeah. Um, and the, the key thing you need to know about this letter um, is that he he wrote in the body of the text, my course is almost run, which I loved. And um, he was very clear in his own mind that he was approaching death. Yes. He wanted to let his correspondent know that as well. And it wasn't a particularly close correspondent. It was just another correspondent. He was just letting people know that. I think he, he was becoming increasingly aware of what was going on. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in these themes, guys, listen to Death Part 1 and Death Part 2. We actually did two podcasts on the history of death. And I suppose that's why it's made me think about this. But what, what he's doing here is he's at the stage of his life where he's anticipating his own death. Yes. And that has a fascinating history, the history of anticipating death. Whether it is you are the person who is dying and how you respond to it, there are all sorts of extraordinary accounts right throughout history of people writing w within days or weeks of dying and how their personality often changes, how they... Um, write about their lives in different ways. And then you've got the other side of that. You've got people... How do you deal with someone who is who is writing like that? You know, put yourself in the, in, the, in, the, in the shoes of the person who's received the letter, whether or not they're a medical professional. How do you and why do you behave in the way that you do with people who are approaching their death? And they're conscious of it. Yeah. Um, it's a fascinating little kind of moment of life which definitely has its own history. And you can do the history of nursing because the way that people are cared for in the last few days of their life when everyone is aware you're going to die that's changed um and how it how it has you know been as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either that's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Um, experienced right throughout history. There are all sorts of wonderful historians doing brilliant things, whether it's um, you know, right back to, to prehistoric times, looking at the way that people experienced death and they understood death. You can, you can look at that through burial practices and then um, more contemporary times, you've actually got people writing about their own experiences of approaching death or um, those carers who are dealing with them. Lots of really interesting stuff written nowadays by um, contemporary nurses who and, and modern science who are coming to terms with new ways of understanding what people are going to going through and um and and how they can help help them hmm. ease towards the somebody, end of their life somebody got in touch with us on twitter uh this last week which was very touching and thank you for getting in touch uh saying that they'd listened to some of our podcasts on death and that they recognize that having experienced their the death of their mother-in-law oh right recently right. and and how it had actually been it actually been a very sort of touching thing that had event that had brought them together and actually had some sort of good humor to it as a sort of 
part of sort of saying goodbye. But it's if we... part of the value of history, James. If I you're know, doing podcasts like this and people are finding comfort, or you know, know, if you're going great. through anything in your life and you can put it in a context, yep. whatever it is, um, we're doing one on anger in a minute. If you're really cross, in a minute. <laughs> listen, li- <laughs> listen to our podcast. Next up, anger. Listen to our podcast on anger. But um, you know, I think the point is, is that um, yeah, that, that says the value of history right there. Once yep. you understand what you're experiencing through the context of other people, it helps you make sense of your own life. Exactly. Boom. Exactly. Drop mic. Yeah, but but also to bring this back to Darwin and to think Dar Darwin is obviously coming to terms with his own mortality. But also, if you look at the correspondence, there's something deeply personal and melancholic about him as well. Like really, I mean, if you have a look at, um, and I was just I was having a look at the Darwin Project website, and there's a little section. It's a brilliant, brilliant website. You should all go to it. It's part of the Cambridge University. Uh, Darwin Correspondence Project. Uh, but th- th- there's a little essay there which has grouped together some examples of letters or, that show Darwin's bad days. And we're used to Darwin being this sort of brilliant man, great scientist, discoverer, very famous. Um, but actually, he was pretty you know, melancholy in his letters to people. So listen, listen to these. But I'm very poorly today and very stupid and hate everybody and everything. One lives only to make blunders. I'm going to write a little book for Murray on orchids. And today I hate them worse than everything. So farewell and in sweet frame of mind, I am yours ever. I'm ever yours, C. Darwin. This was to Charles Little, uh, Charles Lyle, uh, 1st of October, 1861. And another letter to uh, W.D. Fox, uh, 7th of May, 1855. I am rather low today about all my experiments. Everything has been going wrong. The fantails have picked the feathers out of the pouters in their journey home. The fish at the zoological gardens, after eating seeds, would spit them all out again. Seeds will sink in salt water. All nature is perverse and will not do as I wish it. And just at present, I wish I had the old barnacles to work at and nothing new. Another letter says, I'm very tired, very stomachy and hate nearly the whole world. So good night and take care of your digestion, which means brain. So he's, you know, there's something (laughs) something about him that, you know, there's something there deeply personal. And I think one of the things about his correspondence is that it gives you this snapshot into, well, not a snapshot. It gives you a really deep understanding of his life. Did you know that over 15,000 letters survive from the early days when he went off on the Beagle voyage through to his uh, origin of species, uh, the the writing of that, and then the the sort of furious debate that he had with people afterwards. You can have a look at the way in which he gathered knowledge. So it's this is very much a, a republic of letters. So people all over Europe, all over the world, are corresponding with him, and that's how he gets a lot of his scientific knowledge. So it's it's extraordinary. People are sending him stuff. Um, you can also use it to not just look at him, but also the correspondents who are writing to him. So it allows you to flesh out some of the lesser known figures in Victorian science and natural history. Uh, but it also it allows you to look at his family. You know, and this is somebody who you know was working at home, who had a, a good relationship with his wife, who who took care and attention and indeed interest in his children, their education, their welfare, their upbringing. So you get you get a really rounded picture of this man. And one of the things that I one of the things that I wanted to mention briefly was the bizarre things that came to him 
in the post. So, you know, one of the things is, this is a man who is, who is sort of, who is obsessed with his work, who is constantly trying to prove things. And how does he do his experimentation? I mean, part of it is that he's an empirical scientist and is, and is observing things, you know, around the world, you know, that he's got physically in front of him. Um, but also people are sending him things. Um, and there's a, there's a debate about how see how birds uh, how how seeds travel and how birds are effective agents to travel seeds and one of his correspondents uh alfred newton uh sent him this which is a rotten partridge foot um <laughs> with worms in it um and it's got a sort of lump of clay attached to it in which are these seeds Brilliant. So this comes to him through the. I mean, he he then he then wrote it all up, uh, but but then you know threw the actual thing away. But there is a there's an illustration of it here. Look at that maggoty old. So that's a brilliant illustration. Um, is mm-hmm. it? it <laughs> so you've got the lower half of the of the of the leg. It's a bit like a welly. It looks like, um, and then the. The start of the foot going into a lump of clay, which has got bits of roots attached to it. And worms. And worms. He's obsessed with worms. There's worms coming out of it, aren't they? Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, it's, it looks like a root ball attached to the foot of a... Was it a partridge? Yes. Yes. Oh, somebody, else sent him, somebody else sent him That's a picture. horrible. A picture, <laughs> a picture of an ear. Uh, this is a, uh, an illustration of a Wulnerian tip. Uh, a German friend's ear. He also got sent... Is a Wulnerian tip a type of ear? I think it is. Yes, and also there was uh, another another guy called Frank Chance sent him his beard and scalp hair as a counterexample to the claim in his book, one of his books, that beard hair in animals was almost always lighter than that of the scalp, and he sent him clippings from his own. And if that uh, beard to, to is that his beard opposite. hair on the right, which is remarkably darker than his hair on the left. Yes. So it's, <laughs> it's, it sort of disproves it. So um, there are brilliant things like this on this uh, Darwin Project website, which is www.darwinproject.ac.uk. They have digitised a lot of the letters. There are all sorts of... You can go and look at all his correspondence. You can have a look at his life. One of the things, though, that I was most fascinated about this... Have a look at this is that they've recreated his study and his garden. No. Yes, they've recreated it. On the 17th of September, 1842, he moved to a place called Down House in Kent. Uh, he lived there for the rest of his life. This is where he, this is where he worked. And what they've done, uh, the clever people at the Darwin Project, have recreated his study. Have a look at this. Um, look at this. There, there we are. It's there in all its glory. So you see here his his desk, comfy chairs, tables, curiosities, and it's an interactive. Brilliant. So thing. It, it looks like he's got lovely floor to ceiling windows, beautiful ottoman, as, as you might expect. Yes, um, very yeah, uh, very detailed silk carpets. Um, let's, he, let's click on here. This is this is looks like a dog basket. So this is uh, Polly's basket, and he talks about this in a letter on the 28th of November, 1872, to Francis Cobb. Uh, he describes, he quotes, um, When an honourable dog has committed an undiscovered offence, he certainly seems ashamed, 
and this is the term naturally and often used rather than afraid to meet his master. My dog, the beloved and beautiful Polly, is at such times extremely affectionate towards me. He's got a male dog called Polly. Yeah. <laughs> Well done, Darwin. That's very surprisingly modern. And now, now we're on. Now we're on to his desk, and on his desk, he's got a variety of things. So what anyway, have... shame is something. We've got a bit of a history of animal shame. What has he got there? here? We've got Darwin's microscope here. So there's the microscope and some of his surgical tools that he's using there. Uh, what else have we got uh, next door to it? is his dissecting equipment. Mm -hmm. And this is written about in a letter to George Newport, naturalist and surgeon, on the 24th of July, 1851. Oh, stop, stop. So, at the moment, what we have here is this dissecting equipment, but on a, like a chopping board, but a dissecting board, into which are written, James, the scars of dissective mm. history. <laughs> so, the... Um, it's stained bloodstains. Yeah, but what... Lovely. You can, you can, you can... Um, you could almost read read the process of dissection that's going on here. Like yes. I've never thought about this before, but chopping boards reveal history, don't they? They're, yes. they're, they're manual. It's like a butcher's block. But butcher's block. But this is uh, they're much finer and it's heavily scratched over time. But yes. that's literally been inscribed with Darwin's yes. scientific observations. That's amazing. My dear sir, your kindness some two or three years ago in showing me your manner of dissecting induces me to believe that you would be willing to oblige me if it be in your power, by lending me one of your old pair scissors sharpened by yourself and adapted for the finest dissections in order that I may shame Messrs. Weiss and Co. to endeavour to make me an equally good pair. <laughs> so prosaically polite and, and flatulent yeah. uh, in prose. It's sort of positively Dickensian. Let's go back to his picture of his study. Um, so he's got jars here. It's a mixture between books and objects. Yes. And what, what's on this table? Ah, th look at this. These are his pill boxes. Uh, he writes about these in a letter to Professor Henslow, chief recipient of his treasures from the Beagle Voyage. Uh, he writes this in 18th of July, 1833. By the same packet which takes this... There will come four barrels. The largest will require opening, as it contains skins, plants, etc., and a cigar box with pill boxes. The next two, the, the two next in size, only geological specimens need not be opened without you like to see them. The smallest and flat barrel contains fish with a gimlet. You can easily ascertain how full it is of spirits. So, uh, well, two things here. One is it's it's fascinating being Darwin and having all of the uh, yes. having the postman turn up with all sorts of interesting things. But the other side, imagine being the bloke who receives the stuff that Darwin's sending you from all over the world. That must have been so exciting. Brilliant. Like, now brilliant. I get quite excited yep. if, if the Amazon guy turns up and I don't know what's in the cardboard box and it turns out my children have spent something without my knowledge, basically. Oh, you've bought yourself a hammock. <laughs> <laughs> On daddy's car. Yes, thank you very much. Um, but yeah, but it may, you know, Darwin somewhere around the world, and a lot of barrels turn up with skins yes. in that may yep. not have ever been seen in England yep. before. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Where are you going to go with Darwin? We've done his. We've done his correspondence. Yes, we have done. And just briefly, uh, well, you did skip past one. There was a. There was a. There was a one chair. Of his, one of his. Um. No, I wanted to see one of his letters actually. Uh, they're not his list of letters. His list ah, of his list of letters. Um. There was one about bees. There we are, bees. I beg a million pardons, abuse me to any degree, but forgive me. It is all an illusion, but almost excusable about the bees. I do so hope that you have not wasted any time for my stupid... 
stupid blunder. I hate myself, I hate clover, and I hate bees. <laughs> He's getting quite cross. This is a history of anger it coming is, in. Yes, yeah. so uh, yeah, transfer yourselves to our history of anger, our forthcoming history of anger, if you haven't listened to that. Um, I love the apologies in that. I love the blunders, the, you know, accepting that you've made a mistake. Um, that's all very good. And I, I think it's really important when you're thinking about someone like Darwin, when we always come, well, I come back to this a lot, but, you know, you read his book and you, you read it as a fait accompli, you read it as a finished, polished thing. And you forget that there's an entire process of a very busy, overworked, overwhelmed man who's going to make mistakes in the process of doing it. And it's all very human. And once you, you think of historians like that, I think it's fascinating as well. If you've got a, you know, a really important historian who's written the most important book about the French Revolution or whatever it is, you know, go back and look at the drafts and you realise what chaos there was. Um, and the role of editors in helping people make things which seem polished as yes. well. Um, and science is about, it's as much about getting things wrong and making mistakes and trying as it is about success. I mean, that's what, I, I, you know, if you think about the scientific method, you have a, you have a hypothesis, you then, uh, you then develop a design an experiment that tests that and then you prove or refute your, your, your hypothesis, which is very different from how historians work. <laughs> historians, as you all know, are operate in a thesis-free <laughs> manner. We, we don't really know, what, which basically means we don't really know what we're doing until we've done, doing it. Until we've done it. Mm. So it's a sort of serendipitous journey through the past. So the next thing that I loved about the Darwin exhibition, um, see if you can guess where I'm going here. I can't. This is Edgar Allan Poe speaking in 1844. Huh. In getting my books, he wrote, I have always been solicitous of an ample margin. This is not so much thought through any love of the thing in itself, however agreeable, as for the facility it affords me of pencilling in suggested thoughts, agreements and differences of opinion or brief critical comments in general. What do you think that's about then, James? No idea. Tell me. It's about marginalia. <laughs> get... oh. Marginalia oh. and doodling. One of my favourite topics. There we go. You One did of my favourite topics. So there's a great bit in the Darwin exhibition where um, there's a... It's a... Mm, uh, exercise, school exercise book, isn't yes. it? Yes. And uh, he as You would look back to your childhood, listeners, um, and, and think about those moments when you weren't really listening to what was going on. I've got a very vivid memory of carving something into a desk at university and also of um, uh, writing and scribbling in my textbooks. I did it all the time. Very restless. They write, I mean, writing and scribbling and doodling in textbooks suggest... Yeah, it's about creativity. It's also about boredom. It's not necessarily connected to the text itself. Yeah. What is interesting is when there are there are marginal comments in books that are in that manner. So the book is basically a the page is being used as a surface for other things. Uh, I think we've talked about that with with Bibles, with books of common prayer. Um, with with receipt books, uh, household manuals, all of those kinds of things would be used almost as and letters, marked up letters, and, and marked up letters. We've got podcasts on as, all of this, guys. Go and check them out. Would be used as as archives and spaces to record things and write things. But what I think is even more interesting with marginalia is the way in which it allows you to look at how somebody has engaged with the book itself. Um, so you can see this in various ways. So somebody has bought a book has then uh, put their name and date in it so that you know that it, it's there is ownership there. And then when books are passed on, either down the family or to other people, 
later owners will then put their own their own uh, initials or name in it. So you can have a look at the transmission of a book. Then there is the way in which people engage with a book, because reading, as we all know, is a silent activity, largely post post medieval world where people read out aloud. It's a it's a silent activity and it's very difficult to reconstruct the reader's engagement with a book because it doesn't leave any written trace and historians operate through written sources largely visual stuff as well and objects um but annotations in books allow you to see what passages they have um found interesting last night i went to the christopher durston memorial lecture the late great christopher Durston, who's a brilliant 17th century historian. The lecture this year was being given by Michael Braddock, who's a professor at Sheffield, and he was talking, interestingly, about the concept of the people in the English Revolution. And he, at one point, he talked about John Lilburn, who was one of the leveller leaders, the levellers, the sort of popular political movement during the, who sprung up during the Civil War. And he got, he had got hold of the Bodleian copy of one of Lilburn's books it had Lilburn's name on it and it had over a hundred marginal comments mm. in it and from that and the, and and Lilburn used this book as the basis of something else that he was writing and what you can see and he was basically refuting this text and what you could see if you followed it through you could actually see where he was marking up the points that he was then going to take issue with so marginalia allows you to tell an awful lot about about this. Read Bill Sherman's Used Books. Uh, it's extraordinary. Uh, William H. Sherman. Uh, it's a great title, books. it gives you a sense of the book being yes. a used object, yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, it's all about marginalia. So I love that, just you know, thinking about Darwin doing his doodling, and I could imagine myself doing that as well. Um, and also there's been a kind of... There is a not insignificant amount of discussion online nowadays about marginalia which i think is fascinating as well and i think that's because of the value of the internet in making people share their own curious reading practices because your own reading practice is a very personal thing and you yes. might not actually ever know that other people write in books but suddenly people have found out that they're reading in the same way which is a bit of reading but How a bit of writing I, I write all over my books so do i yeah always have done so do I. Yeah. I love it. Um, I'm, I'm, some people are horrified. They're like, you must yes. surely worship books because you're a historian. I was like, no, I eat them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually take notes in books rather than on rather than elsewhere. So I guide my, I guide my way, and yeah. I, I, I annotate the margins, underline things, and I annotate the margins so that you can follow an, a line of argument. Yeah. Do get in touch if you have a funny way of reading or writing. Um, but you know, the point is here is you've got an underappreciated and underused form of writing, historical writing. Yes. So that the historical writing in the book is the source itself, not the book. Yes. And there's a, I think, underappreciated, um, and understudied method of reading which is creative. Yes, isn't it? Yes. I call it creative reading. So I read very, yes. I read very differently in a novel. The idea of I read a history book. But in a history book, I kind of tear it to pieces and cut bits out and um, take photographs of it and uh, write all over it, highlight it, ruin it. Basically, I'm increasingly reading fiction in that way. I read, I mean, I read fiction as a as a historian, mm. not not in the sense that I'm reading it as history, but I use the kind of analytical skills that the that the historian uses. I've just read Graham Swift's Waterland for my book group. Uh, it was an extraordinary book. Uh, Graham Swift's a brilliant writer, and it's deeply historical. So it's based in it's based in the Fens, 
Uh, it was written in the in the eighties when the Conservatives were messing around with the history curriculum, and the central character is a history teacher, and history is being phased out in his school. But against that sort of backdrop, you've got this you've got this deep geographical history, topographical history of the Fens. So that that's this sort of big geographical construct. And then what's interesting is the way in which history intervenes. So the way in which the Industrial Revolution comes in, the way in which uh, technology drains the Fens, the way in which then the world wars come in and take people away. So that there's that kind of level. And then there is a level where you're actually looking at the family history of this guy back to the 17th century and the roles that they played. And then there's this eerie backdrop of the history teacher teaching the French Revolution, which informs absolutely everything that he does. I don't know how you would read that novel in a in a straightforward literary critical way, or even for enjoyment, without understanding the powerful way, the powerful role that history has on all those multiple levels. Yeah. So it's an ex go out and buy Graham Swift's Waterland. Extraordinary. Um, I tell you what, James, we're gonna, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, we've been talking so much about Darwin. I've got more to say about Darwin. So have I. And I tell you what, we're going to do that in the introduction to okay. our um, Darwin interview, which will Excellent. come as the next edition of our Excellent. podcast. I want to say, I, I do tune in because I want to talk about worms. Yes, well, I'm going to talk about... Uh, I forgot what I'm talking about now. Uh, I am going to talk about... It's really interesting. Oh, oh marrying your cousin. <laughs> Rivalry ah. and marrying ah. your cousin. Ah. Um, so anyway, that one, we've I suppose, Darwin is all about apologies, homes, offices, bees, shame, uh, Network, doodling, letters, anticipating death. Yes. Amazing. We should just do a podcast on Darwin, I reckon. Yes. Anyway, um, that's our episode on Darwin. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you tune in for part two. Make sure you go and check out the other podcasts we linked to there. We talked a bit about boxes. We talked about Padram Castle. We talked about letters. Um, and we very much enjoyed doing that. Uh, do please follow us on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I am at James Daybell. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. Um, that's right. And also, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Don't forget, James and I are on tour. We've got two shows on tour all over the country at the moment. We're doing um, our original multi-period show, Histories of the Unexpected Live. And then we've got our new crazy show on the Tudors. We're having a great, great deal of fun meeting you all. And, um, and and we have books. We have books. Big book. Then uh, a series of books. Yeah, sure. Come and check it all out online. Yep. Historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you're interested and you want to help us out, we're trying to raise up enough money so that we can record in a recording studio. We don't have to do it down the shed in my garden where it's pretty uncomfortable and very noisy because of the trains. So that's the purpose of our Patreon account and we'd really appreciate any donations you can help uh, there. Um, otherwise, guys, we've really enjoyed talking to you today and um, I hope you've enjoyed listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.